welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert, Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Joy Bauer, and I am super excited to be hosting Dietitian Connections new accredited webinar series interviewing power RDs about some of the hottest topics in dietetics. We have certainly learned a lot from our first episode, and we're jazzed to keep the conversation going. We literally had thousands and thousands of RDs signed up for our first episode, and we have the same exact for this one. So certainly, we are hitting upon topics that you all want to hear about. So why have we put this webinar series together? Because there are so many confusing, compelling, and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition, and our goal is to highlight and provide you all and us with different perspectives, insights, and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, to educate you, and ultimately help you become the very best RD or RDN that you can be. Dietitian Connection is here to serve you all, our RD, RDN community. So that being said, if you have any suggestions on future topics or future speakers, please let us know in the chat box. You could do it now, or you can also think about it, and you could let us know in the feedback form that you're going to be getting right after the webinar. Now, before we get started on today's exciting topic, intermittent fasting, healthy habit, or fad diet, I have a few quick things to mention. First, there is definitely going to be time for questions from the audience at the end of the session. And here's what we plan to cover. So you can either hold your questions or you could jump in during the conversation. We're going to cover the various types of fasting, the benefits that are seen in the research, and also the benefits or lack of benefits that are being seen in real life patients that um, are attempting this way of eating. So again, if there's something that we don't cover that you want to know about, please jump in and add, you can add your questions to the Q&A box. Um, again, you could ask in real time. Um, if you feel like a question that I've asked is not fully being answered in a way that you'd like it to be unpacked, or you could wait until the very end just to see if in fact we covered it. Um, You can also see questions in that chat box that other members of the audience have submitted, which is cool because then you could just click it and upvote their question, which is really helpful for us because we have a whole team on the back end that are reading your question. They can see which questions are more popular than others. 
Now, as for technology issues, if you have any, and hopefully nobody will have technology issues, but if you do, there were only a handful last time, if that even, you could message the dietitian connection team via the chat box. So it's really important to know that the questions go down below in the Q&A box, but technology issues will go in the chat box and somebody will jump on it and they're going to be able to assist you. Finally, there will be a recording available after the session. So you will all get an email from Dietitian Connection with all of the recording information within the next 24 hours or so. And that email will also explain how you can get your continuing education cert certificate for today's event so that you can submit and you can get your CE credits. Um, and again, because there will be a recording for this episode, if for any reason, you know, you get pulled in another direction, I know some of you have kids that have just started school, or you might have other work obligations. If you have to step away from your screen, no worries, you will be able to see this recording over and over and over again, if you choose. And now it is my great honor and privilege to introduce our extraordinary guests. Um, before I get into their impressive backgrounds, it's really important for you all to know that they were very thoughtfully selected based on their research and experience working with real life patients regarding intermittent fasting. So first up, my honor to introduce Sofia Cienfuegos. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She graduated as an RD in 2013 in Chile, and later she received her PhD in nutrition and metabolism at University of Illinois at Chicago. Her area of research is the effect of time-restricted eating on obesity and cardiometabolic diseases. She is currently running the very first year-long trial in time-restricted feeding versus caloric restriction. Hi, Sophia. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, Hello, Thank everyone. You. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we are so lucky to have you here. Thank you so much. I will be back. <laughs> Next up, Julia Zampano is a registered dietitian with Preventive Cardiology and Rehabilitation and the Women's Cardiovascular Center at Cleveland Clinic. Her part-time position involves mainly patient counseling for a cardioprotective diet with focus on cholesterol reduction, controlling hypertension and diabetes, and weight management, including intermittent fasting. Her position also entails involvement in nutrition program development, research projects and studies, patient and employee education, and community outreach. Hi, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me today. Uh, you are so welcome. It's really such a privilege and super exciting to have both of you here. Uh, huge appreciation. So now we're going to get into the meat of the questions. We have like a great roundup of questions. I'm probably going to alternate. Some questions are going to be specifically for one of you. Um, other questions are going to be for both of you. And um, I'm just going to jump in and I'm going to get started. Does that, that sound good? Absolutely. Let's get started. Okay. You guys ready to chat? <laughs> Right. Okay. So this first question is for Sophia. Um, would you mind explaining? I think this is the perfect place to start. What is intermittent fasting? And like, what are the different types of intermittent fasting? Because I know there are all sorts of styles. Correct. 
So intermittent fasting, the answer is very simple. Intermittent fasting is whenever you alternate periods of eating with periods of fasting. So some of you might wonder, okay, I do this every day because I fast during the, during the night and I eat during the day. Correct. But in order for that to be considered intermittent fasting, that fast, that overnight fast should be longer than 12 hours and shorter than 24 hours or 32 hours, something like that. Usually I would say 24 hours. So if you fast for less than 12 hours, that wouldn't be intermittent fasting yet. And if you fast for longer than 24 hours, that would be considered prolonged fasting that behaves differently than intermittent fasting. So usually the fast ranges from 12 to 24 hours. Also intermittent fasting is an umbrella term to describe three different types of interventions that we've been studying throughout these last few years. Um, if you want me to explain a couple of the, of the main types, uh, the first one that was described in the literature is alternate day fasting. And as the name says, alternate day fasting is whenever you alternate days of fasting with days of feasting. So during the days of fasting, usually participants do or a complete fast, so like a zero calorie fast or a very low calorie diet with 25% of their energy requirements during the fast day. And then on the following day is a feast day. And feast day means that participants usually eat ad libitum, whatever they want during that day. And then the next day they fast again and so on. Uh, the next type of intermittent fasting that's been studied is called the 5-2 diet. And the 5-2 diet is similar to alternate day fasting, but you fast for two non-consecutive days a week. So two days of fasting, non-consecutive, and then the five remaining days you eat your normal diet as libidum, at libidum as well. And the third type of intermittent fasting that's been studied, and it's the one that I study, and it's probably the one that I will be focusing on this presentation, is called time-restricted eating. And time-restricted eating is probably the type of intermittent fasting that most of you have heard about because it's the one that's most popular nowadays. And it's when you intend to shorten your eating window. So all of us, we eat on a certain eating window from the first thing that we eat on a day to the last thing that we eat that day. So for instance, if I wake up at 6.30 and I have my first meal at seven, then from and my last meal at 10, my eating window is around 15 hours from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So this type of intermittent fasting tends to shorten that eating window to less than, I would say less than 12 hours and prolong your overnight fast. The main type or the most popular type of, of time-restricted feeding is called uh, the 16-8, where you fast for 16 hours and then you eat on an eight-hour window. That's the one that probably you've heard the most and there's a lot of studies on that specific one. There's also a couple others. Uh, one is called periodic fasting and it's uh, periodic fasting is not exactly um, intermittent fasting, it's periodic fasting. So you do it for five days a month and then the remaining 25 days you eat your normal diet. And the main type of periodic fasting is called the fasting mimicking diet, and it's a very low calorie, very low protein diet. It's mainly plant-based, so you do it for five days a month. And then there's another one that's called OMAD, but actually we don't have much data on OMAD. And OMAD is one meal a day, and as the name says, it's just having one meal a day and doing like a 24-hour fast. But actually we have very little data on OMAD compared to the previous one that I, that I just described. So those are the main types of intermittent fasting that we've studied so far. Okay. And like, I agree in my world, in the media world and talking with um, fellow colleague RDs or RDNs that work with intermittent fasting, they mainly use 
a consistent time restricted type of fasting. So it would be like you were saying, like 816, or they'll do 1014 or 1212 sort of a thing. So my question to you is, what exactly when you're fasting, what are you allowed to eat? And I know like a lot of people also ask because I hear it's like zero calorie beverages. And then there's something called dirty fasting where you could like have some wiggle room if you feel like it's the only way that you're going to stay on the straight and narrow. So in other words, you could put a little bit of cream in your coffee, even though it takes you out theoretically of the fasting zone. But I think my bigger question is, what is allowed in the perfect world, a non-dirty fasting world? And are you okay with artificially sweetened drinks? Because I know a lot of the diet sodas then come up also, if it has zero calories, does that mean it fits within my fasting hours? Okay, that's a tricky question. <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, what is allowed during the fast? Usually something that has more than five calories would be considered that it would break a fast. Okay. We don't have much research or much data on this topic in specific, but the consensus is usually that more than five calories would potentially break a fast. So during the hours of fasting, what we in our lab advise our participants to consume is calorie-free beverages. So water, tea, coffee, sparkling water, herbal infusions, among others. Now, regarding to artificial sweeteners, that's the tricky question because there's not much data about it. We don't have enough data studying the exact role or the effect of artificial sweeteners during the hours of fasting. Uh, for now, we do allow them if someone really needs them, if it's gonna be, make their fast like easier, but it's not something that we recommend. Is if Got you it. don't need artificial sweeteners, then don't don't include them. Try not to. But but if someone really cannot have, for instance, their tea without some sort of sweetness inside there, okay, we allowed a little bit. But usually we try to advise the drop ones and not the powdery ones because sometimes the powdery ones comes with maltodextrin and those could potentially break their fast. Um, but yeah, it depends on, on, on the case, but it's usually calorie-free beverages, the thing that won't break a fast and that we allow to our participants. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for that. And somebody had a question that they wanted to know what OMAD stands for, and it stands for, so it's O-M-A-D, one meal a day. Um, so I just wanted to quickly answer that question. Um, the second part of this, before I move into like, what is the actual research showing is when you do the time-restricted continuous, like a 18-6 or a 12-12 or a 10-14, and just so everybody knows, those numbers just equate to the time that you're fasting versus eating. So if it's an 8-16, it means that you're eating for eight hours during the day and you're fasting for 16 hours a day. Can somebody on a day-to-day -day basis adjust their time frame so that let's say for example you know monday through thursday i have regular work hours <clears throat> so you know an 8 to 16 means you know i start fasting at 12 o'clock and it just works out for my schedule <clears throat> excuse me and um on the weekends you know i want to shift it a little bit because i have social dinners late at night so i'd rather start eating at 2 in the afternoon so that i have wiggle room later at night to enjoy 
eating in a restaurant and like lingering over my entree and my dessert sort of a thing. So are you able to shift on a day-to-day basis that window? Does it still work? Yes, you can definitely try to tailor it to your specific lifestyle. But the idea is to try to stick to that week schedule every week because our bodies like to know and to have like like set times of eating and same of sleep. So this is really aligned with some other area of research that's in circadian rhythms, it's pretty hand in hand with the research in time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding, what I study. So usually we've seen that stable eating times and stable sleeping times are better for the functioning of our own bodies and our own metabolism. That said, if you want to make some slight changes to make it easier for you to follow (laughs) during your day-to-day life, yes, do it, but try to stick to like that weekly schedule every week. That's usually what I advise to my participants. Okay. It makes great sense. It makes really good sense. So um, what I would like to, I want to stick for one more question, Sophia. I want to know like, what are you finding with your current research? What are the benefits, the specific benefits, and are these benefits a result of weight loss? In other words, people are losing weight, so they're improving metabolic um, syndrome, cardiac markers, things like that. Or are you actually seeing health perks independently of weight loss? Great question. So um, in, our, in our lab, we usually study intermittent fasting, specifically time-restricted eating for the management of both weight and cardiometabolic diseases in people with obesity. So that's what we focus on. And we're one of the few labs that we run clinical trials in this topic. Um, So actually, we've seen some really interesting results and promising results. However, I have to say that for most of you that are listening this, you've probably heard about intermittent fasting in media and in social media. And there's a lot of like a ton of information about this. But the actual information that we have from human trials is way less and way less exciting than probably the one that you've heard. So I want to be like very real about this. So what we've seen is that when you do time-restricted eating, when you restrict the amount of hours that you're eating, you eat less calories because you have less time to eat. So basically what happens is that you do an an intentional caloric restriction. So people without really noticing, without counting calories, without selecting specific foods, they restrict the amount of calories that they're eating. Because of that, people tend to lose weight. The the weight loss is mild, around 3 to 4% of their initial body weight around two months, something like that. But remember that participants are allowed to consume their normal foods during that eating window. They don't have to restrict specific foods or specific food groups or change the macronutrient composition of the diet. No. Uh, So first of all, this unintentional caloric restriction results in weight loss. And then we've seen some other interesting cardiometabolic results, such as decreases in blood pressure, uh, some really interesting results in terms of glucose metabolism and insulin. We've seen decreases in fasting insulin, uh, insulin resistance. We've also seen some studies have seen decreases in triglycerides, and also we've seen decreases in some oxidative markers. Now, is this because of the weight loss or this is because of the fasting hours? We don't know yet. And that's one of the big questions because we know that when participants lose a certain amount of weight, more specifically, when the weight is around five to 10%, that weight loss comes with some cardiometabolic benefits, decreases in blood pressure, decreases in triglycerides, in some other lipid, uh, blood lipids, 
insulin, among others. However, there's been a few studies, not from our lab, from a different lab, that have shown that there could be metabolic benefits despite of weight loss. So some studies that have maintained weight, so they give the entire amount of calories that participants need during that, those eating windows, so people don't lose weight, they maintain their weight, they've seen some metabolic benefits. Uh, so potentially there could be an effect of the fasting hours independent of weight loss. However, we only have very, very few trials here and we definitely need more. But in this area, in this topic, there's a ton of studies that will appear in the next few years. So everything that I'm saying now could potentially change next year uh, because it's, it's, it's the amount of information that we have. It's, it's growing exponentially. But I would say that from now, most of the benefits come from weight loss, but it could potentially also come from those fasting hours. Okay. So like, in other words, it's like, stay tuned. We need to look at more research that separates the weight aspect. And we're only looking at the health exactly. markers. Exactly. Um, so, so this, this question came in from Hiba and I, you already answered some of it, but one part of her question was, can intermittent fasting have any negative effects on metabolism and muscle mass? Yeah, so could potentially have a decrease in muscle mass. So most interventions that result in weight loss will decrease muscle mass a little bit because whenever you lose one pound, that pound is a certain percent of that pound is fat, a certain percent is water, a certain percent is muscle. So always when you have some sort of weight loss, there will be a little bit of muscle mass decreases. There's been some studies that have seen a little bit of muscle mass decrease with intermittent fasting, but those are usually studies that do not combine it with exercise. And those studies that have combined intermittent fasting with exercise, they've seen muscle mass maintenance. And in some cases, it could be uh, muscle mass gains. Um, so it depends on many um, variables. But I would say that if you do it in a healthy environment with exercise as clinicians, you shouldn't have any trouble with muscle mass. Mm -hmm. um, okay, great to know. And my last question for you is, and I'm sort of putting you against the wall to answer this question, but do you think that intermittent fasting is superior to traditional caloric restriction right now with the limited amount of information that you know from your research? Mm-hmm. No, it is not. Oh, interesting. So, for, yeah. From the data that we have so far, intermittent fasting is not superior to a caloric restriction. It's not superior, but it's also not inferior. It's the same. And for me personally, I think that's really interesting because we know that caloric restriction results in really good outcomes in different aspects of your body. So that's really interesting. But caloric restriction has really poor adherence. For people, it's difficult to adhere to a caloric restriction, specifically for a long-term caloric restriction. And what we've seen from our studies in intermittent fasting is that intermittent fasting has very high adherence because it's an unconscious caloric restriction. People are... They're not counting calories, changing what they're eating, doing like all of that extra effort that a caloric restriction entails. So um, the only thing that it's a little bit better in intermittent fasting compared to a caloric restriction is adherence. People can do it a little bit easier. So that's what I usually tell to um, other dietitians. It's not superior. Intermittent fasting is not this amazing miracle that sometimes people want you to believe it is. It's not. It's just 
another alternative to a caloric restriction specifically for those participants that cannot adhere to a traditional caloric restriction. And we know that there's a lot of those just won't adhere to a caloric restriction. Right. And I also think like as dietitians, we're always looking for new, safe, novel approaches. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like the sexiness of this or the newness or just, you know, trying something different can be a valuable tool for us to have in our toolbox. Correct. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to pivot now. And Julia, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, so you are working in a clinic with real people. So like, what have you found? Is it, is it difficult for them to follow intermittent fasting? Which type of intermittent fasting out of all of the, the variations that Julia went through seems to be most manageable for people? And do you see that they're actually achieving health outcomes? Those are all great questions, Joy. I definitely have seen from a patient care standpoint, success in intermittent fasting. And to Sophia's point, with the the ability to comply to a calorie restriction can sometimes be very difficult for patients. Specifically, and I don't wanna hone out males, but I do think males struggle with caloric restricted diets because there's generally a female that's preparing and purchasing all the meals for them. So I use this method a lot in, in males because they don't want to weigh and measure their food. They don't know what their wife put in their meals or whatever takeout they got or the office meal that's been provided. There's usually a lot more flex fluctuations in the meals that males eat. So I do use this a lot for them. And I think it's worked great because they don't feel um, overly restricted. They don't feel overly tied to having to monitor everything they're eating all day long. They just know that they can eat after a certain time and then they can't eat again until a certain time. So as long as they stick to that, it works beautifully. So I think from um, that form of success, I've seen a lot of um, positive benefits there. Uh, on the flip side, for females, I've used it a lot. Um, I, I'm I use traditional caloric restriction very, very often for weight management as well as diabetes management. Um, but you you'll commonly see um, females, especially females, more around a peri or postmenopausal time periods of their life, struggle even with a caloric restricted diet. They're doing everything they need to do. They're logging their calories and they're extremely frustrated because they're not seeing the scale move to the extent that it should, given how much time and effort they're putting into their weight loss. So I use this also as another form, um, maybe as a break from caloric restriction, a little bit of freedom, uh, maybe in combination. It really depends on the patient but they're very um, encouraged by the break. They're very excited about not having to overly monitor everything they put in their mouth. Uh, And they see one of the biggest benefits I've noticed is a decrease in appetite, which is huge because that helps support your overall weight loss goals, as well as, you know, a reduce in cravings for sugar, which I think again is huge because that's a, big deterrent towards weight loss is I'm hungry. I'm on this low calorie diet and I'm starving or I'm craving sugar because the combination of their foods, the foods that they are eating aren't adequate. They're not providing their appropriate macronutrient needs 
to support their needs and therefore they're craving foods. So then that creates a, almost a, a binge towards foods that they might be craving and then the cycle of um, difficulty. Right. No. And it makes sense. It makes sense. And again, it's like, it's, it's a sort of like another cool thing to try with people as long as, you know, we're very verbal and we communicate that when they are feasting, so to speak, we're still encouraging whole foods, balanced meals. Um, It's not a license to go whole hog and eat a whole lot of junk food. So Julia, um, Intermittent fasting obviously goes against the construct of eating meals throughout the day. It, it, it sort of flips a lot of what we've learned in school as dietitians right on its head. So a, a few things, and I'd love, I don't know if you had, have any case studies up your sleeve, but I want to know like how challenging is it for somebody to change, like a real person to change? And you, you already mentioned not so much. Sometimes it's kind of exciting, but um can you describe some of the challenges when it comes to intermittent fasting that some of your patients, you know, maybe some of them have done incredibly well, but I'm sure you've had others that it just didn't work out and you had to transition back to more of a three meals, snacky kind of food plan. So just to sort of get a feel. And again, and, and for people that are asking questions, I want to get into after this, like what happens to metabolism? What happens to mental clarity and focus? So I am going to be asking, we have a lot of questions coming in on that. I am going to be getting into the weeds on that stuff as well. But I want to stick with right now, the patient experience that you've had. So I have one case in mind uh, that there was a, a young lady, I'd say young, meaning young to me, um, late 30s, early 40s, and she had been on a caloric restricted diet. She was in my weight management program and really struggled moving the scale at all. Exercise was adequate. Meals were well balanced, uh, whole foods based, you know, weekends were a little bit variable, but really, she really had a very good understanding on on how to caloric restrict, logging regularly. She shared her logs with me. I really had minimal comments. So her meal structure was great. And uh, she's a a healthcare employee. So of course works very long shifts. Um, And she, I suggested intermittent fasting to her and she tried it for a couple of days and she was very frustrated immediately because she didn't lose any weight. So for the first week or two, she was hungry, she was irritable, and she didn't lose any weight. So she was even more upset. And then I said, well, you know, you've got to give it some time. You know, let's let's give it a month. Give me a month and let's see. <laughs> and the next time I she reported back to me, she's like, you know, it, it helped. And her weight dropped, you know, two pounds. I, I weighed them every week. So first time in the span of 10 weeks that her first her weight dropped two pounds in a week. So I would just preface to say, give it some time. We tend to be a culture of immediate success. We want something immediately to work. We want it to see the results right away. Well, that's not the case with most things you intervene with diet. You've got to give it some time, no matter what it is. So it may take a little bit of time. You've got to realize you're adjusting from eating 12 to 16 hours out of your day to now eating only eight to 10 hours out of your day. That's a huge shift. You've almost cut it in half. So you have to be aware that there's going to be a little bit of a growing pain initially. So I do want to 
you know, encourage people to fight through that if that's the case and not expect the scale to change immediately. So give it at least a month, give it some trial and see. So she's definitely um, had a lot of success on it, really enjoys it, has been able to be a little less strict with her day-to-day eating habits, which has really relieved some stress and anxiety around eating for her. So that's definitely one success story. Um, and, and in regards to a lack of success, I have tried it with other patients, um, an older female who, again, has been doing a lot of caloric restriction, logging, et cetera. I tried the fasting for her and she did give it a good try and found that she was extremely hungry. It wasn't working with her. Her, her moods were variable. Um, she was just more irritable. She found herself constantly thinking about f- food, constantly looking at the clock, couldn't wait till she could eat. And we just decided that wasn't the plan for her. We put her back on a normal caloric restricted whole foods based diet and she did just fine. But it's nice to be open to trial and error. Um, I did, even in that case, encourage her not to eat in the evenings though. So if she was gonna have a portion controlled, higher protein, higher fiber snack, that was fine. But if she was getting into the habit of eating snack foods, that was one area that I do try to work with patients is if they're not going to intermittently fast, which is is not for everybody, for sure. I really try to work with them on evening eating, because I think that's where a lot of people get in a trap and they, Mm. you know, eat beautifully throughout the day. And that's generally where we get in this um, poor eating, excessive caloric intake, emotional stress and fatigue based eating. So I really work with them on evening eating and maybe just leave the morning alone. Um, that's my first kind of step process. If I'm going to consider fasting with a patient, I may start there. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that um, because I think that that is a fabulous future topic. Aside from intermittent fasting, I think so many patients and clients not just with weight issues, um, with blood sugar issues and, you know, all sorts of various things, sleep disturbances, huge problem of overeating and over, over nibbling at night. And uh, listen, I'm sure like a lot of people that are streaming in and watching this, you know, we're, we're in this because we love food also. And you stay up late and you put the kids to bed and you crack open the computer and listen, we, we can relate, right? It's very, very easy to fall victim to dating food at night, um, extracurricular nibbling. So maybe that's like a whole different topic that's outside of intermittent fasting that we can explore how to be great advocates and good counselors and strategists for our clients and our patients, nipping that in the bud. Um, absolutely, for sure. But thank you so much for that. We Let me tell you something. This is like a hard one to host because we have incredible questions that are coming in and I have a whole list of questions and I'm trying to figure out how to best manage this. So I think what I'm going to do is merge my next question with a question that came in. So I'm going to start by reading this question because I think it's really great. It's from Stacy, And it says, this sounds like we're legitimate, uh, legitimatizing the patterns we've seen, our unhealthy patterns from clients that come in already skipping meals, eating only one large meal per day, et cetera. If this were successful, why hasn't it worked for the people who have been skipping the meals all along and then they come in with diagnosed health concerns? So, you know, 
back in the day, all the way through prior to intermittent fasting exploding, we've been sort of showing people to fuel throughout the day, right? To pick smart food choices, to moderate those fuel choices, food choices, but to sprinkle them throughout the day so that we fuel our metabolism. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, Sophia, this, but taking Stacy's question, um, in mind. And also my question for you is as dietitians, we've learned that lowering calories are going for long periods of time can suppress metabolism. Like how many times have we heard in undergrad and in graduate school, like you're going into starvation mode. It's counterproductive to revving metabolism and burning calories and assisting in weight management. So like, how does does in fact intermittent fasting negatively affect metabolism? And to Stacy's point, are we sort of like undoing a positive message that we've been working on for decades and decades? That's a really good question, Stacy. Stacy, right? Yes. Um, and that's actually one of the questions that I had when I joined this lab. So when I joined this lab, I'm a dietitian and I was a very like a very traditional by the book dietitian, I thought that intermittent fasting was just a fat diet. And I was like, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. This is probably going to be just like my patients that I'm used to see that eat one meal a day and they have terrible blood markers, terrible like metabolic health in general. But what I've realized, and this is something more from my opinion than something we've measured, um, is that it's different to like accident, accidentally fast than to actually do it planned. So usually when someone like accidentally or they do fast or they do one meal a day, it's tied to worse health habits in general. It's people that usually go to bed really late, that wakes up really late, that skips breakfast because they haven't woken up yet. And then they have one huge meal. Usually that meal is something completely unhealthy. They, it's usually tied to drinking, to smoking. So usually like that behavior is tied to other health outcomes that could explain why usually those participants have like worse outcomes in general, and they do it because they're not organized. Um, so to your next question, what happens with um, metabolic rates? That's true. Our bodies will always compensate uh, when our bodies notice that we are not giving our bodies food. And that's that's a defense mechanism of our bodies. And that actually happens. So our metabolic rate decreases in order to preserve our tissues, our muscles uh, during this extreme caloric restriction. However, most of these mechanisms happen between 48 and 72 hours of fasting. That's when usually our, our metabolic rate tends to lower and to respond. That's when all of those mechanisms take in place. But if you remember in the beginning, usually intermittent fasting is 12 to 24, maximum 32, but it would never take you to 48 hours of fasting because that's prolonged fasting. And that's completely different to intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. So the length of the fast is not enough to reach those um, compensations, those metabolic compensations that um, reducing caloric uh, in, in, in energy um, in general. So usually 12 to 24 hours won't reduce your um, energy expenditure. 
That's the main reason why we haven't seen decreases in energy expenditure. And we've measured it in our trials. We've measured beginning post and see if there's been a, a decrease in energy in, meta in basal metabolic rate, sorry. And we haven't seen a decrease. However, we only have short-term trials. And that's something that I also read in one of the questions, what happens long-term? Long-term, and this is something that's really important to to say out loud, long-term, we don't have long-term trials in time-restricted eating. We're actually now doing the longest one, uh, the longest one that's a year. So next year, I can probably tell you what happens long-term, but in time-restricted eating, in this specific type of intermittent fasting, the longest trial is 16 weeks. So we still have like shorter-term shorter trials. So, yeah. So here's a question that I was thinking about as you were explaining, and that was super helpful. What happens then if somebody is doing an intermittent fasting, so they're not fasting long enough, the 48 plus hours to suppress their metabolism, but what is the caloric amount when they're not fasting that puts them into um, the non-danger zone? so to speak. Like in other words, what happens is if somebody is fasting, but when they're feasting, they're not hitting a certain caloric amount that keeps their metabolism revving because we all know that, and we're going to get into disordered eating and populations that are not appropriate for intermittent fasting. But what I have in my mind is, you know, somebody who thinks they're doing intermittent fasting totally appropriately, and they're working so hard when they're feasting or eating to keep their meals clean, that the calories are too low and therefore they sort of stay in a fasting level and they don't get out of it and wind up jeopardizing or compromising their metabolism. Is it making sense the way that I'm explaining it? I'm not sure. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I completely got the okay. point. Um, so from our studies, the caloric intake that happens during the hours of eating is usually around 13, 14, 1600 calories. I would say okay. we haven't seen someone going below that, like below 1200 calories. So usually around 12, 1300 calories, we shouldn't see, We it's not likely to see nutritional deficiencies or like okay. getting into the danger zone. So we haven't measured that. However, from my point of view, what I think that for someone, for instance, with normal weight, who really wants to lose weight during intermittent fasting, and they do intermittent fasting, but also they restrict a lot of their calories during their eating window. Yes. In that sense, we can possibly get into danger zone in terms of metabolic rate, in terms of thyroid hormones, in terms of sexual, in other hormonal systems in general, if you're fasting plus restricting extra calories during that eating window, yes, it could be, but we haven't measured that. And it's okay. something that I want to say here. Most of the studies that we have and that we do in our lab and the vast majority of studies human trials in fasting is in people with overweight and obesity. So all of these results are usually applied for people with overweight and obesity. We don't have trials in people with normal weight. So that's really important. I've had some people that start fast, normal weight people that start fasting for a week and they're like, oh, I haven't lost any weight. Why do you say that you lose weight in a week? Well, because we usually do our trials in people with 
overweight right. or obesity and weight loss in groups with higher weight to begin with is more noticeable in one or two weeks compared to someone with normal weight. So it's really important to keep that in mind. Most of these studies in people with overweight or obesity. Okay. I, I'll tell you, it would be such a great message for dietitians and their patients. If you could ever sort of wiggle in that bottom of the calorie number that folks cannot go lower than, or they will compromise this intermittent fasting, because I think it's good for people to hear that, to make sure that they are nourishing and fueling their bodies with enough stuff when they're actually eating. Um, I, I'm like fascinated by all this research. Thank you so much for that. Um, so Julia, I want to ask you a question that I think a lot of people are wondering, and I'm definitely wondering, have you, in your experience working with real people within the clinic, do you ever find that when you put this restriction on the timeframes that they're allowed to eat, does that then ever like play with their head? In other words, they become overly preoccupied with food. I'm not talking about disordered eating folks that come into this already with anorexia or binge eating disorder or bulimia. A regular person who never really had food hangups, I mean, maybe they had some because they're coming into this overweight and they have high cholesterol, maybe they're on a cocktail of medications for blood pressure, maybe they have skewed blood sugars, but they're coming into this somewhat of a normal overweight, I mean, overweight person who likes food and likes to indulge. And then suddenly you put them on this intermittent fasting regimen and they have become preoccupied with food in a way that they never were before. And does that ever lead to binge eating behavior during the times that they're allowed to eat because they sort of become all like food anxious and like build up and, you know, it, it kind of can backfire. That's a great question, Joy. To be honest, I have not seen that as a separate entity if there's no history of it. Now, if there is a history of binge eating or preoccupation with food and, and intake, that certainly can be stimulated by some intermittent fasting if that's the way you tend to go. But I have not seen it come up as a result of intermittent fasting. So it, it may be something where we don't know it's a history, they didn't share it as a history, but generally if there is some um, issues with overeating, binge eating, emotional eating, um, food preoccupation, that, that may be associated and triggered by the intermittent fasting, but generally not influenced or began by that fasting state. Okay, that's really interesting to hear. Um, and then and I, I would want to add one more comment with that, that does in, in segue into the populations that shouldn't be fasting. Oh, so, I'm, and I'm definitely going to ask you about that. So like go to, because I know that there are a slew of populations that this plan is just not for them. Sure. So um, anyone with a history of an eating disorder certainly should be very cautious or avoid intermittent fasting unless properly directed by a dietitian or physician um, or, or um, mental health professional. So anyone with eating disorders, binge eating, um, anyone with any, any immunosuppression, so anyone who's immunosuppressed has any type of transplants, we wanna avoid this on any transplant patients, any chronic kidney disease, um, any very advanced heart disease. So if you're in heart failure, 
Um, diabetics that are poorly controlled. So we really want to avoid this for very poorly controlled diabetics. Type one diabetics should also probably avoid this unless it's very um, monitored safely by a physician, dietitian, health professional. Um, Sophia, anyone else you want to add? Um, I agree with all of those. And I also want to add... Um... Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. I thought it was me. No. Um, I would add people, pregnant people or breastfeeding also shouldn't because we don't have safety data yet. And also because there is a negative energy balance that results from restricting the amount of hours uh, that caloric deficit could potentially alter the growth or the development of the fetus or the production of milk. Um, also, people, kids children, adolescents, because they're in growth periods, again, an energy balance, a negative energy balance could alter growth in general. So we usually say no. We also don't have any safety data on those specific groups of the population. The elderly, I would also say maybe not because there is a risk of losing a little bit of muscle mass. And we know that that's critical um, during the, the, the elderly, in the elderly. And um, I think the rest, you already covered them. In diabetics, though, diabetics, there's been a few studies in people with diabetes, mainly type 2 diabetes, and we've seen that it could actually help with, uh, like, HbH1c like control, glycemic control in general. Uh, it decreases the amount of uh, medicine that people need. However, there's a big risk of hypoglycemia. So this needs to be like super, super tailored and closely followed by their endocrinologist or their main physician. So those, those are the main ones, I think. And also, it's really important to say that fasting is not for everyone. There are some people, like you were saying, Julia, before, there are some people that just won't adhere. They don't like it. They don't feel well. And that's not the idea. The idea is that if someone wants to do intermittent fasting, it's because it's easy for them, that it, it, it's not a struggle. If it's a struggle for you, if you're hungry, if you're constantly looking at the time, if you're like frustrated, don't do it. Nothing's going to happen. It's just one more tool in the toolbox to achieve some potential benefits and that and that's it there's nothing magical about it so yeah i would say that great to know i would also imagine and you guys are the experts so you'll tell me um you know with obviously knowing that disordered eating is you know not appropriate for this in some instances how do you feel about compulsive overeaters does sometimes giving them a window. And in this case, I would probably think a 12-12, you know, a 12-hour window of eating, 12 hours off. Does sometimes giving those boundaries or parameters help them to just know like the kitchen is closed after dinner sort of a thing? So it actually could be productive versus counterproductive. I know it's about know your audience, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do agree. I do agree. Having boundaries can be very helpful and starting at a 12, 12 would be great. And then seeing how they go from there, you know, you can certainly then shorten it to a 10 hour window if they find success in it. So I do think boundaries are, are key. I, I do think if you enjoy, or you start to fast, you'll start to enjoy the benefits of fasting. So appetite can go down, you know, um, insulin levels drop. So you see the, the, 
that metabolism, your ability to hold on and absorb fats can decrease. So you certainly see health benefits and then that's encouraging as well. So I think if you can get through the, the tough part of the fasting and get it into a routine and, you know, overcome the initial hunger and kind of um, watching the clock for the next meal, you'll see that your, your appetite will go down and then you'll, you'll find it much more helpful and beneficial from a long-term standpoint. Great. So, and this is a question um, that I find very interesting. So this is from Lynn Ann and she asks, how does exercise fit into this? Is it okay to exercise while you're in the fasting period with time-restricted eating, like before eating in the morning? So I would say it certainly is okay as long as you're feeling okay. So if you tend to be someone who has hypoglycemic attacks and your blood sugar tends to drop, then that would not be advised. We certainly don't want to be hypoglycemic. So I would suggest doing your exercise after you've broken fast and you've eaten a meal. If you don't tend to have hypoglycemia and you do fast and feel generally fine with exercise, I think that's, that's also kind of gauging it by the way you feel and your body's reaction to exercise and fasting. I do think one important key though to note is uh, electrolytes. So definitely including some electrolytes in there if you are going to be fasting and exercising. So is it, would it be beneficial to tell patients or clients that are trying out intermittent fasting, log it, do, do an exercise before when you're in the fasting state, see how you feel and sort of explaining to them what the feelings would be if they did become lightheaded and hypoglycemic. So if they did it once or twice and they experienced this, then, you know, it's sort of a case by case that that particular patient or client would need to exercise um, after eating. Because I think like even in the real world, if you ask 10 different patients or clients or friends or family, do you like to exercise before or after eating? You get all sorts of different answers. And I think because different people have different ways of, um, you know, first of all, you know, they like the way that they feel when they exercise, but also different ways of um, leveling out their blood sugars. We respond mm-hmm. so differently. Um, so, I, so it's an important thing to just know. So everybody listening, it's like case by case. And I think we just, you know, like everything else in the world, we listen to, we listen more than we advise and we help them to figure out which is the best strategy for them before or after eating. Can I add something to this question? Sure. Um, Usually from the studies that we have, most of the studies that have tried intermittent fasting, specifically time-restricted feeding with exercise, they usually exercise during their eating window. So during when they're eating, during their eating window or right after their eating window, not with like a lot of hours of fasting previous. And this is specifically important for people who are athletes or people that train or that are competitive trainers. It's really important to, for that specific population, try to avoid exercising with a lot of hours of fasting in your body. Try to prefer to train during your eating window or right after your eating window, because there's a potential risk of 
uh, losing a little bit of muscle mass because your body needs to find fuel from somewhere. Um, however, for people that are not athletes and that enjoy working out fasted, I usually enjoy working out fasted. That's how I do it always. It's really important to uh, do it start slowly. If you're not used to fasting, if you're not used to exercising while you're fasting, try to do it a little by little. And it's really important, like Julia said, electrolytes, especially if you sweat a lot or if you exercise outside. And also the amount of proteins that you eat during your eating window are crucial because there will be a, a little bit of protein catabolism, a little bit of protein damage during those hours. But it's really important to give those proteins back to your body during those eating windows. So as a dietitian, if someone is doing intermittent fasting and they are working out during their fasting hours, make sure that they're eating the, the right amount of proteins that they need. That's really important. Sophia, can I just also ask you um, while you have the stage, do we have any negative or positive effects from intermittent fasting on mental health? That's like one area we sort of didn't uh, get into anxiety, depression, overall well-being. Yes, so we haven't directly measured those. We have we don't have studies that have directly measured mental health and intermittent fasting. Unfortunately, probably we will have more of those. However, in our studies, we usually measure adverse events. So, in a study that we published. 2020, it's it was with really short eating windows, with a six-hour eating window and a four-hour eating window, really short eating windows. We measured adverse events every week. And we noticed that most of the adverse events happen in the first two weeks of starting to fast. So usually people had a little bit of headaches. They felt a little bit like lightheaded, uh, a little bit constipated, dry mouth, like some side effects during the first few weeks, and that's normal. All of those tended to disappear after the second week. So it's like that period where your body's getting used to, like Julia said a couple couple questions ago, uh, give it a little bit of time uh, because those side effects should disappear. If they don't disappear after two weeks, then probably it's because fasting might not be the right technique for you. And that's okay. And that's normal. It's not for everyone. Uh, but we haven't seen like studies that have measured specifically intermittent fasting and mental health. There's been a few studies, most of them done in animal models that have seen that fasting, because fasting increases the amount of ketone bodies during the fasting hours, specifically after 12 hours of fasting, there's a slight increase in ketosis. Uh, some ketone bodies tend to increase. That's why potentially appetite is a little bit suppressed because ketone bodies tend to suppress appetite a little bit. And also ketone bodies have like a exceditive effect in your brain, in your neurons. So some people might feel like they're more energized and more lucid and more focused, but th this is only like from a very, very few trials. This is something that we definitely need more research on, but it could potentially have an effect on, on like neurological markers in general, um, specifically coming from this mild ketosis, but we, we, we need more trials. Yes. That's something that I'm going to repeat over and over again. We definitely need more research in all of this. That well, I'm we can't about. wait to have you back on when, <laughs> when you have uh, be extended research, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so I think that my very last question is actually for both of you. And that question would be, is intermittent fasting a lifelong eating plan, or would you recommend that people, clients, patients, friends, colleagues do it sporadically if in fact it's something that you, you would recommend? And so do you want to, Sophia, why don't you start? 
Okay, I'll start. So usually what I recommend is that if you feel fine during uh, intermittent fasting, specifically if it's like a mild fast, let's say 14 hours of fasting, 12 hours of fasting, or maybe up to 16 hours of fasting, if you feel fine, you can definitely take it as a lifelong thing, like a long-term thing. Um, however, longer fasts, longer than 16 hours, 18 hours of fasting, 20 hours of fasting, 24 hours of fasting, I would not advise taking those as a long-term thing because there could be nutritional deficits uh, or deficiencies coming from that really short eating window. So usually longer fasts, 12 hours, 14 hours, yes. Shorter, no. But the most important thing is that people cannot hear. For those that feel well, they feel great, they're happy doing it. Those, yes, continue doing it. But those who are still struggling a little bit and they feel like they need to look at the time and no, no. Depends case by case. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Julia? I would completely agree with Sophia. Case by case, I do think it's very safe to do eating within an eight to 12 hour window is, is very safe from a long-term perspective. Again, shortening your window four to six hours long-term not advised. So mm -hmm. certainly keeping a very healthy, you know, midday loading calories within a short time frame is extremely beneficial. And I do want to say that, you know, we didn't address this, but this does not have to be done seven days a week. So I think there are benefits to doing it even three to four days a week. So I think that's something to be said too, because it's nice to know that let's say you have the weekend to eat a little bit more freely and to eat a little bit of a, in a larger eating window. So start with three to four days a week. That's almost the starting point of all my patients. I start them with three to four days a week. And generally the patients come back in a month or two and they've done it four or five days a week. So that you may naturally progress to more because you enjoy it. You like the way you feel if you don't like the way you feel, you'll already kind of progress out of it. So just let your listen to your body, listen to your cues that your body's telling you, and, and be aware of how you feel during the fast. And definitely progress as, as your body tells you to. But I do think it's, it's something we don't want to do every single day. I think it's nice to give your body breaks, and it's nice to give your mind a break of not having a set window to eat within. And that makes it a little bit more feasible long-term and a safer right. long-term. Right, well, gosh, I thank you so much. I can't even believe an entire hour has completely flown by. And this has certainly been information packed. I mean, to me, the big takeaway is as dietitians, we have yet another tool um, to offer up to appropriate clients, right? Everything is case by case, know your audience. Um, and if you think that somebody could be a candidate for intermittent fasting, I think our job is to offer like all of the different variations that Julia went over in the beginning. It's not a one size fits all plan. And obviously during the feasting portion of it, you know, we call it feasting, but it's not feasting during the eating portion of it. Um, huge responsibility on us to ensure that people are choosing all of the foods rich in protein and whole grains and fiber and antioxidants, um, produce through the roof so that their bodies run optimally 24 seven. But I just, I love the fact that 
you know, we got to hear about the emerging research. We know where the holes are, where the gaps are. Um, you guys were really honest and super straightforward. And it was like true food for thought for absolute sure. And, you know, going back to the original question, um, you know, is it science-based or is it a fad diet? Like clearly it's not a fad diet if in fact it's done in a very, very responsible way. So sadly, this is all the time that we have for today. I want to thank everybody for joining us. We had a really, really great audience. We hope that you all enjoyed today's session and got a lot out of it. I know that I sure did. And I want to give tremendous appreciation and gratitude to Sophia and Julia for sharing their insight and expertise with such grace and such generosity. You guys are just awesome. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.